Welcome to On The Verge. This podcast will highlight interviews from entrepreneurs, musicians, and professional golfers. It will center around what tools they have used to help them reach their dreams, how they use golf to further their career, whether it be for escape from the rigors of their profession or to build more business, and how the communitas of wine, music, and golf enrich their lives. This is all about the enjoyment of life, rising above the struggles, and stretching past the best to be better every day. On The Verge. On The Verge is presented by Cure, cannabis used for research and education. The medical industry is steadfastly looking to help millions of patients that suffer from injuries related to repetitive motion, sports, trauma, and many other orthopedic injuries, as well as skin disorders, mental disorders, cancer, and osteoporosis, to name only a few of the other underlying conditions that billions suffer from each day. On average in this country, we have 10,000 people turning 65 every day. With the cost of pharmaceutical medicines increasing, patients deserve natural alternatives that are not only more cost-effective, but also safer for them and society. Cure is focused on providing natural alternatives to aid with current or previous medical conditions. Cure does this by providing a therapeutic properties of natural cannabinoid formulations for multiple uses, whether internally or externally. Ask your physical therapist or your primary care physician if cannabinoids are right for you. Or check out their website at www.curemich.com. Cure, cannabis used for research and education. On the Verge is also brought to you by Green Scene. Green Scene is a family-owned company recognized as the Sizzle Award winner for outdoor living in Williamson County. We design and construct areas to blend with the natural landscape of your yard. That can include outdoor spaces, gazebos, fire pits, outdoor kitchens, and yes, putting greens. We understand the importance of your home. That's why we never settle for anything but the best. Green Scene also provides multiple teams with professional landscape maintenance, irrigation, and outdoor lighting. Welcome to On The Verge. Today's special guest is the Chief Growth Architect and President of Velocity Strategy Solutions, Ben Strout. Ben, how are you today, buddy? Great. It's good to be here. Thank you. My pleasure. I'm very much looking forward to what you have to say because in a, as an entrepreneur of many things and sometimes feeling stuck in growth and or the business cycles, I'm very intrigued about what it is that you do because you're in the, in the business of helping businesses grow as a growth architect, which I find very interesting in the word choice you have there. We'll get into that in a little bit. But in a, in a business climate that has never changed faster than it is right now, what are you seeing as the biggest challenges businesses are facing through change in 2022? The distance from the C-suite to the customer has never been greater than it is right now. Interesting. Um, many times the leadership teams that I work with have averaged 10 years of 20 years or longer. It creates a tremendous amount of myopic drift in that they don't recognize how much change has actually happened. And yet the customer is completely empowered and in control of the scenario. They're driving product innovation. They're driving how they want to engage with the brand. They're driving who and when, the terms and everything. And it has completely disrupted how we do business. Uh, and it's just those at the top are the slowest to come to it. 
for two reasons. One, they're not in touch with the pain. The other part is the organization. Uh, I always say never underestimate an organization's capacity to resist change. Mm-hmm. So and there is a moment in time, even when the leaders want to change, where an organization gets large enough and established enough and mature enough that it will work to preserve itself. Um, I call those cultural permission systems. Hmm. And until we renegotiate those, it will actually uh, uh, actually force everyone to snap back into uh, normal mode of operations. And that just creates uh, a tremendous amount of drift and moves people away from the world of possibilities. And like to me, so I'm sitting here listening to that, and I always remember like my dad telling me stories like, when you get to businesses that are big enough, it's like trying to turn around an aircraft carrier if you're talking about change. It's so hard when that when that boat that big gets moving in a certain direction and he finds out, hey, things have changed. It takes a long time to turn a 15,000-employee operation driven in one direction to be able to adjust. And the, the challenge is it almost seems like it's it's very difficult to create businesses that are aircraft carriers anymore because technology is changing things so fast that what worked in 2015 literally does not even matter in 2022. And how how a leader has to be that nimble when he probably grew up not even thinking to be as nimble as he was in 2015 is humbling, but to be that nimble in 2022 has to be almost mind-boggling. To the to the to the leaderships in in businesses all over the world, probably. When you say it's two different management styles, uh, one is very much likened uh, and shaped by the industrial management um, era, if you will. Uh, we sent our entire culture to war during World War II, and coming off of that, we learned how to build big businesses based on hierarchical structures that matched the military. Mm-hmm. And we did that very effectively. And because companies controlled markets, they controlled uh, supply chain, they controlled product development, they controlled uh, how you did commerce, where you did it, how often you could do it, all of that, it became very easy to scale that. You know, division of labor, uh, you just break out the cost and the more pieces that you're able to produce, the more efficient it becomes. And this is very much of an engineer's mentality. How can we build a machine that runs just seamlessly? And that was rewarded for a long, long time. Uh, What we are seeing emerging, and it's largely coming from uh, the tech sector and startups and that is what I call a responsive model. Mm -hmm. So it's not about trying to take one thing and make it incredibly efficient and known and mitigate all risk. It's about creating a completely responsive environment that when new information is available, I'm willing and able and humble enough to adjust. Oh, wow. And, and that, I think, is, is going to be the deciding factor. Because if you do not have a listening platform within your organization right now, and I'm not talking about voice of the customer initiatives, I'm not talking about the quaint community engagement efforts, I mean truly, truly sitting your company on top of a central kind of spine of data, and that you aren't enabling your leaders at every single level to understand how them meeting their metrics metrics, create symmetry and effort in order to achieve those overall corporate objectives and to be able to adjust in real time, there is absolutely no possible way that you're not going to get passed by. That is so fascinating. That is a bold, huge statement for anybody 
who's running a business to contemplate at that second right there. Absolutely. It, because, and what ends up happening is um, it, it shakes leaders to their core because one, um, you know, they're faced with, these are high-powered, accomplished, uh, well-versed, well-skilled, respected individuals who have to place themselves in a situation as if they have a beginner's mind. Mm-hmm. We are starting over. And the problem with that is all of the operational de- uh, you know, dependencies that you have, all of the commitments that you've made, the pensions that you're doing. So all the constructs of these big organizations or just established thinking are really way down the ability to be able to uh, pivot and see things in new ways. Wow. I would imagine right now you're sitting in a good spot because Nashville is such a hot market. We have so many Big businesses coming from New York City and Los Angeles, both tech and finance, among other things. Uh, and because that's, we'll call that the cutting edge is moving to old slow south Nashville. But Nashville is not as slow as people think it is. That's right. But it's not LA and New York City fast. But now, probably for more than one reason, these companies are exiting those hotbeds and coming to Nashville. How do you see where Nashville is going and the people that are enticed to come and start their businesses here? How do you see that one benefiting what it is that you do? And how is that going to, in turn, make Nashville something of a mega powerhouse in the future? Well, I think any time you're close to technology, you're always going to be, as, as a, just a community, you're going to be infusing people who are always constantly thinking new ways. I don't know if you've ever read the book, How Google Works, but there are two things that were really, I took away from that book that are pretty powerful. One is that they are always looking for what they call the smart creative. They actually don't want a specialist because they believe that a specialist has already made up their mind as to what the solution is, hmm. and they literally can't see anything else. I mean, I'm sure when you're, when you're instructing uh, folks or when you're, when you're leading teams or all of that, you can absolutely tell those individuals. They've already made up their mind and they just want you to rubber stamp that what they believe or what they see or what they feel is true. But in Google's scenario, I mean, this is, you know, arguably one of the most powerful companies in the world that can have access to all any talent that they wanted. And they're highly, you know, uh, give deference to engineering mentality. They want somebody who's going to come in and be a learner. Um, as Lencioni calls them, humble, hungry, and smart, that mm-hmm. ideal team player. The other thing I took away from that that I thought was really powerful is is they have a time limit on the teams. So they establish cross-functional interdependent teams and they give them a time frame. Uh, and after that time frame, they disband success or failure and they reconfigure those teams and they cross pollinate that learning all across the organization. Wow. And so when you think about bringing that type of culture into Nashville, thinking about those types of individuals infusing both mature businesses, starting new businesses, getting involved in the community, it literally is going to loosen everyone up um, in, a, in a way in which they're going to at least entertain 
new ideas and new ways of doing things. And I think the pandemic didn't slow that down. It accelerated it. It was already happening, right? The change is happening outside of kind of, um, you know, this established normal. We're already putting pressure on that balloon, if you will. It was only a matter of time before it exploded. And that's what the pandemic did. And what the pandemic revealed is just how non-responsive organizations were to the realities that are out there. So that's why you get, you know, middle of last year, Jamie Diamond at J.P. Morgan and Chase, or J.P. Morgan says, you know what, if you want a job, get back in the office. Completely tone deaf. But I love, you know, Deloitte a week later comes and says, hey, you know what, we want an all remote workforce. I mean, it's a brilliant recruitment move on their part, but it was absolutely, you know, to me, just a beautiful kind of symbol of where things are. You've got, you know, a senior leader, leader that is hanging on to the world that the only way we can do this is this particular way. And you've got a, you know, another group over here, arguably still unbelievably influential, that's saying we're open to do things. And I think there's something in the middle. I don't think hybrid is necessarily maybe the right word, mm-hmm. but it's really hard for me to believe that anything, there's only one way to do it. Yeah. Right. And anytime I meet somebody or anytime I recognize that within myself, I have to step back and go, that probably means that's my preference. That's what I've seen. That's what's been reinforced. That's where I've been successful, but that's not necessarily what's going to lead me to a a new horizon, if you will. I mean, even mathematical theory at its, at its, you know, at its base, its foundation says, if you want a new outcome, you have to change the elements of the equation, right? Mm-hmm. Now, I don't know, some of this new math, we might actually able to come up with different answers. Yeah. But, but until we change the variables in the equation, we cannot change the outcome. And that's true in leadership, that's true in life, that's true in business. Yeah, I think it's interesting. I was reading a, a meme that I posted recently, and I was just popped in my head as you were discussing that. You know, like, think about the, the largest transportation workforce is no longer the taxi system, it's Uber. That's exactly right. right? The, the largest uh, hotel or accommodation is Verbo, not, not a, a Hyatt or a Marriott or a Weston. And it's that kind of thinking is where the world, like, and I'm starting to think about how that then ties into like cryptocurrency and like where the world is going is so not anything that we've ever seen before. There's no inventory. Right. Like, the, like Uber doesn't own any car. Or an employee, so to speak. It's just a service provided. Same with Verbo yeah. and all the other similar things. And like to be that nimble or to be that like those businesses were probably started by people that were working at companies that were so tone deaf. You're like, well, if you're not gonna do it and you've taught me how to kind of set this whole thing up, well, I can do this without even starting an inventory. I don't need hundred million dollars to start a company. All I need to do is figure out the technology to kind of set this whole thing up and then boom. And I would imagine like that is the kind of thinking that is what we're going to see as the leaders of the, of this upcoming next 50 years, wouldn't you say? Oh, 100%. It's, it's about living in the world of possibility, not living in the, in the world of efficiency. And I think that's, that's, the biggest, uh, that's the biggest gap. It's always interesting to me that the largest companies with the most money, the most reserves, the most market share, the most access to talent are, are almost always the slowest to respond. 
And, uh, you, you know, uh, the, the book Necessary Endings really speaks into that. You know, the new CEO comes in, it's one of the examples that Henry Cloud shares in that book. And uh, he, new CEO comes in, recognizes that two of the divisions that are highly profitable now are not going to exist in five years or are going to be in decline. So he actually tells those vice presidents to shut it down and start building what will, uh, what will be successful. And they just, they can't believe it. Why would we do that? And he's like, well, let's look at, we need, we need to be building what's, what's going to be true in five years, not what's good for us right now. And I think we've, we've um, you know, unfortunately, one of the after effects um, of 9-11 was Sarbanes-Oxley. And I, I call it the great infiltration of the C-suite by accountants and lawyers, professional worry wards. Mm -hmm. I've got a lot of friends that are accountants and lawyers, love them to death, really glad that I have good people around me that keep me out of jail. Mm -hmm. uh, but when you give the seat to lawyers and accountants, they're almost always by nature reactive individuals, right? This is why it's taken decades for the legal profession to accept PDFs as an appropriate form of documentation. Uh, this is why electronic signatures have taken so long to become normal because the, the legal profession is based on precedent as what's already happened. It's almost like academia, right? Yeah. It's, al it's always studying what's already happened, not what's there. And, uh, and so when that happened, we really squeezed out, I think, some of the, the greatest um, you know, types of personalities that led to some of the largest companies that we you know, have seen in existence today. And so we've, got, we, we've come to a point where compliance and risk mitigation is, is such an important reality because of, you know, depending on if you're publicly traded or all of the different regulatory uh, agencies that, that are out there, depending on the business and, and sector that you're in, that it's literally constraining uh, almost to the point suffocating. And I think that's why you see individuals break out of these organizations and, and do something remarkably different. I will say that doesn't, it's not true for all. And if you've read uh, Nadella, who's the president of Microsoft, his book, Heat Refresh, he literally talks about how his situation with his son having a disability changed him. Hmm. And it changed how he thought about business and it changed about who he was as a leader. And when he stepped into that role at Microsoft, he did some things that arguably could have led to um, unbelievable pain. Uh, and, uh, and, and yet that was the very thing that gave it kind of this new hysteresis and this new growth effort. I mean, here's a guy who disbanded the Windows division. Hello. Yeah. I mean, you know, you, you got to be pretty sure in yourself um, that that's the right thing to do. And he, he went mobile first, cloud first, and literally has reinvented Microsoft around the customer. And of course, Balmer had just followed the scorecard um, that had been given to him and that he inherited from Bill Gates. And that's why he missed the mobile revolution. And he still thought that IT departments made all the decisions about technology. Hmm. And uh, what Nadella came along and said, no, 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 we're, we're going to go straight straight to the individual. And, uh, and that individual is influencing um, IT. And he was already had in his mind, I mean, nobody could have predicted the pandemic, but Nadella already had in his mind the architecture of an organization that could support a decentralized uh, enterprise. 
And, uh, and so his, his ability to bring that. So there are plenty of examples of leaders with that capacity, but there are plenty, many, many examples, most of which will never be talked about um, in a book or admitted um, in public mm-hmm. of leaders who knew the right thing and couldn't do it because of boards or compliance or, or shareholder value or anything. And that's why the short-term thinking is really kind of uh, constraining, I think, some of, some of innovation, because you do everything in order to configure that value to hit every 90 days. And mm-hmm. so we're only thinking 90 days. And not 90 days because we're trying to prioritize and execute and reach toward a larger goal. It's because what we've, what we've uh, lifted up as the goal is not learning. We've lifted up as a goal is achieving some type of broader outcome. And so if you're not a learner, if you're not responsive, if you're not humble enough to be able to admit you got it wrong, if you're not willing to listen to people who don't agree with you, if you're not working cross-functionally and interdependently with people who bring all kinds of skill sets to the table, you're in trouble. Yeah. It's interesting you just said something there that, that is so powerful, is that for leaders to learn that what they've done up until now no longer will work and have to go in and talk to everybody and either reverse course, eat their words, or have the inner confidence and okay with, I've learned something new. We have to change course. I wasn't wrong, so to speak, in the past. But if we don't change now, we're going to get run over. The amount of selflessness required to face those people is counterintuitive to the amount of ego that it took to get them to that spot. Absolutely. And that's probably your job. It's right? the great that, paradox. It's the great paradox. And that is what allows you, and that, that leads me to my, the question of, the, I love the fact, because you, you own this, right? It's your, it's your company, right? Chief Growth Architect. Those are your words, right? That's what you feel like you're doing. Yeah. I love that because I don't like the standard. I don't like the standard titles and words. With that in mind, what what I just talked about, what what leaders have to face as they evolve and then this ever-changing planet and how that plays into the chief growth architect of a company who's basically a consulting agency that's bringing a faster vision of change than they're currently able to see and guide that CEO, president, what have you, to this place. How does that all tie together with what you're doing right now? Yeah, no, it's, uh, it, it's, it, it's, it's what makes me great at what I do now has gotten to me in more trouble working for other people than, than um, I could have ever imagined. Wow. Um, I actually took people for their word when they said, go solve a problem, um, launch a product, uh, generate X amount of revenue. Uh, and I, I, I actually believed that they asked me to go do that. And so when I did it, it created ripples within an organization because, um, you know, finance said, well, well, we didn't, we didn't fill out the TPS report cover sheet, you know, um, or, uh, you know, or some, something in the operations side of things, uh, you know, we broke, you know, we we didn't, we, we stepped into rules that we didn't even know existed. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, and so anytime you're trying to do something new, uh, you're going to bump into every part of the organization that wants to operate out of its own self-preservation. And so one of the most powerful things that I can bring to a leader is I can say things that they want to say about their organization, but they are not in a position to say it. 
Mm. Uh, so th- it's, it's a big part of how we came up with the whole frame, focus, and grow kind of modality of this process. I mean, the framing part is what is current reality? What is the problem? What is the root cause? And so when we do readiness assessments or root cause analysis, we're looking at the whole picture. We're looking at transactions and revenue. We're looking at behavioral characteristics. We're looking at uh, one-to-one uh, interviews with, uh, with those key stakeholders. And, uh, and it's not uncommon to uncover some things that are really challenging, uh, but nobody's ever brought that holistic view Mm -hmm. uh, because either A, my leadership has a beginning, middle, and an end, and I don't kind of stream out of my lane, or B, that's the only thing I've ever known. So it's, and it's going really well. Maybe I'm only at, you know, 3% gain, but, but it's not, it's not declining, but it's not, you know, 50% either. And, uh, and, and so that this is, this is where we really bring what we call data to the table and we call it bringing data as a diplomat. We want the data to be able to challenge or validate what we believe to be true to act, you know, to inform our conclusions about what the root cause or the problem is. And then once we do that, it's about really getting laser focused on what success is. Success can't just be, I want to grow. Success just can't be, I want to get bigger. Sure. Success has to be something that when we show up, we know that it's there. Uh, and I mean, you do this in, in your work. You know, you, you, don't, you don't tell people where they're going to be in 10 years. You tell people that when you see this, now, now we know we've solved this problem and now we're moving on to the next thing. And that's exactly what this is. And then that grow part is how, in fact, do we create a culture of learning where we're able to bring together a cross-functional interdependent team that's driven by that data that's driving toward that particular outcome in a way to achieve something that the organization didn't previously believe was possible. Mm -hmm. And once we land on that formula, then the last step is to really integrate that back into core operations. And this allows, um, this allows the leader to mitigate the risk of innovation uh, while at the same time maximizing the value out of mature and established product lines. Yeah, and to me, you've now stepped on one of my hot-button life issues, which is everything you just said, our current education system is not providing for the kids coming up. They're not taught to think like this. We're still thinking in 1955. And... One of the things that I find so fascinating, obviously, I just got done interviewing your son. It was probably one of the most incredible podcasts I've ever done. I'm still kind of not even done putting it all into pieces. But we talked about him being homeschooled and how it's helped foster his entrepreneurial self, obviously with a little bit of guidance from you because that's what you wanted him to do something. And I'm thinking to myself, we talked about it in the podcast, like a... I love what you're doing because you're doing what this country needs our education system to be doing. And you have the potential in years to come to create a, a guide ship, so to speak, for a community, which then can lead to a state, which then can lead to the nation. Our education system is failing our entrepreneurial and technological boat because we're stuck in a, a, a grading system, a thought process that is so archaic and so wrong for where we're trying, what we need to be nimble to move forward and take on other companies, other countries that are trying to take America down. Right. And we're not preparing for that. And in many ways, what I'm seeing in how you're describing businesses, not here just in Nashville, but globally, 
that are struggling with the ever-present change of how things are moving way faster than ever, our education system is failing our kids so badly because they're preparing them for a test in 1957, yeah. not preparing them for 2022, 20, 26, 30 at all, not even close. And who are the ones that are breaking free? Almost the rogues that are struggling in the institutions and figuring out a new way, a better way. And how did you, what do you think about that statement, number one? And how has that played into your beliefs and structures for your own kids and thinking like entrepreneurs? Yeah, I, you know, I, I never really fit in any category very well. So I'm, I've, I've lived an entire life of feeling somewhat displaced. Mm-hmm. Um, I, you know, I worked really hard to kind of wear the badge and, and do the things that, uh, you know, different people had expected of me to do, but, but I never really fit perfectly anywhere. Mm -hmm. So that, so being in, that's why I always ended up being the person within organizations that took on the project. No one else wanted to take on, um, because that was what was interested, interesting to me. That was what really captured my imagination doing the same thing day in and day out. eh. And once I just know my personality, once I figure it out, I'm kind of done. Like I'm bored at that point. That's, that's what makes me great working with organizations and terrible working for organizations. Interesting. That's a great um, statement. Right because there. I really like, I like the intensity of the learning. I love the immersion process. I love being exposed to different people and kind of figuring it out. And then once we strike that formula, it's time for me to hand it off to somebody who enjoys incremental improvement. Um, I'm, and, I'm, and I'm off to the next thing. Mm-hmm. And I think that was, that was the hard part about kind of, kind of following along. And as I look back, some of that resistance I didn't have language for. Because you know, when I was coming through school, that, you know, you were you were a reject if you didn't go to college. I mean, you know, I remember middle school. You got to do well so you can do well in high school. I mean, at fourteen, are you going to go to college or not? Like, how can you make a decision like that at fourteen, right? That's right? And it doesn't matter at eighteen how much it costs. Don't look at the price because we'll finance it for you, and then uh, and then you're going to get a great job and you're going to be unbelievably successful and insulated from all things. And guess what happens uh, the the fall before I graduate? Nine eleven happens. And two companies, I grew up in Houston, Arthur Anderson and Enron, disappeared. Mm-hmm. Two companies my brother almost went to work for. Two companies that were immovable objects. I have lived an entire professional life um, watching the whole myth around the corporate world will take care of you completely disintegrate. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and so that really resonated with me that I'm just going to carve my own path. If I don't fit anywhere, then I might as well just uh, I might as well just figure out what that's going to look like. And I've always had two or three things, you know, that that have been a part of it. And and for me, I had some really great mentors that came along. That was probably some of my biggest education is having people come in and out of my life that really either gave handed me books that that I still remember have had an, and still have an impact on me today, or they gave me uh, you know they gave me advice. And I remember one of these guys in college said, "There's only two things that matter." what you've done and who you know. If you can master relationships and results, the world, the world will be at your feet. 
And, uh, and so that's what I've, I've tried to do. And then this, the same individual also gave me a copy of Tom Peters, the famous management guru wrote in search of excellence, mm-hmm. but he wrote this little book called the brand you. And, uh, and it's, it's a short book. It was kind of designed in a funky way. Um, but basically his premise was, is that everything, all work is temporary. Now this came out in 1999, right? Pre-social media, pre-whole idea of this whole gig economy, pre-idea of what it looks like, you know, that entrepreneurs were acceptable, all of that type of stuff. And so he basically says everything's temporary. So you are trading your talent and your time for opportunities and projects, and you need to see yourself as a corporation. Corporations exist in order to be able to increase their value. So if you have you you exchange your time and your talents for projects and opportunities that are going to increase your market share. And so he actually suggests in there, and I did this for years, that you keep a wow project notebook, things that you do in meetings or whatever that you just write down and you start, and it trained me to think about how am I driving towards some type of outcome or how am I creating more valuable, more, more value uh, for Ben Straub than, you know, today than before. And that was how I made so many decisions. When I got to a point in a company where there was no way for me to excel, I mean, I actually had a, a manager one time. I was, I was generating 10 times on the bottom line what my peers were, five times on the top line. And he said, you know what? You're doing a great job, but and some, somebody someday will die or retire and you'll get a chance to move up. Well, in my twenties, I was like, I'm just, I can't hang out for that. If I can, if I can generate millions of dollars for you and put millions of dollars on the bottom line, I can do the same thing for me. Um, And so I felt like I've, I've learned all I can in that environment. And so anytime I've worked for somebody or even worked with clients, this is a part of the way, like, you know, when it's funny because I, I interview client potential clients as much as they interview me. Because if they're not somebody that's that's exper- more experienced than I am, if they don't know more than I do, and if they can't offer me, uh, teach me, and challenge me, then I don't want to work with them. Because I'm very interested in uh, in that kind of that kind of learning that comes from the friction of two people 100% invested. Yeah, for I sure. I mean, my clients know that I sweat and bleed with them. I live, I, it, you know, what turns their stomach upside down turns my stomach upside down. And I think that's what makes what I do and the company that I'm building so incredibly helpful to organizations that are trying to find their way forward because who else is going to do that with you? When you're the senior leader and you've got an entire leadership team around you, they still report to you. And if they're on your payroll, at some point, they're not going to tell you the truth. They're not going to push back in the way that they need to. They're not going to be able to tell you the things that you actually need to know yeah. because they're sweeping it under the rug. And and that's why in, in, in kind of building velocity... Uh, it was really about creating. Let's let's just talk about what's real. And so so we've you know all the constructs of of culture as, as a phrase that I really like is you know permission systems. The, the the what we have created is is a way to engineer compliance, which really came out of the industrial revolution. We needed to be able to teach kids, particularly boys, to conform to showing up at a certain time and going home at a certain time. We'll tell them the curriculum. Will tell them when they've mastered it or not, and then they will uh, they'll move forward. It was loosely based on you know some some uh, Europe and how they do some of the education systems around around mastery and that. But the way that we have built public school education in, in America has all been about compliance. 
Uh, and that's why you see in, in many times in groups, you see the person who's far ahead and they get ridiculed. You see the person who's behind and they get killed. Yeah. But, the, but if you learn to not stick your head out too far, to not fall too far behind, just stay with the herd because there's power in number, right? That's yeah. what we're taught. And yet, uh, how many times have you been in a boardroom where the the CEO or somebody, is, or the chairman is asking for a new idea? Um, and, uh, and they're asking for something that is going to generate, generate a, you know, 10 or 50 or hundred or 500% growth and, uh, in an environment where you can't, you can't fail. I mean, you know, how many times I've been given innovation projects before working for people and, and being told that I had to have a dollar for dollar return in the first 12 months. That's ridiculous. Uh, that, but that is the risk mentality, right? So we, we throw the word innovation around, we throw the word growth, but what we don't want, we, or what we do want is growth that looks exactly like we understand, that fits exactly what we know from our measurement systems. Um, we don't want something that's different. And so in school, we're taught to have really new and fresh and creative ideas. And occasionally, you have courageous teachers out there that are really inspiring students to think differently. They're allowing uh, you know, differing viewpoints to coexist, mm-hmm. and that's a wonderful thing. But for the most part, we have engineered culture to make you just do what's in front of you, do what's, you know, what's comfortable, and do what everyone else is doing. And those that don't do that stand out. Uh, we didn't come. We didn't come to homeschool because we sudden we had a passion for homeschool. We came because we really didn't have any other choice. You know, we we were very unsatisfied with the private school that we had the boys in. We felt like the value that we were investing in the school was not being returned. Uh, we wanted an environment where they were going to be inspired to be critical thinkers, where they were going to be exposed to people who were uh, you know very successful and really loved and gave themselves to the work that was doing. And occasionally we bumped into that, but we just got dissatisfied. We started looking around and we started going, gosh, to go somewhere else would be twice as much as what we were spending. Um, going back to, you know, to public school or going to public school was not an option for us. Um, you know, I grew up in Texas, arguably one of the most um, competitive districts at the time in the state. I mean, I felt like I got a private school education in a public school environment. Mm-hmm. Um, that's not true in the South. And uh, even though I know most people would consider Texas the South, I, you know, I think there's just, there's a little, little difference here. And so for us, that wasn't an option. Uh, and that, that is not a statement against public school education. It was just not an option for us. Yeah. And because we're a family and individuals that believe, you know, in free thinking and independent thinking, we, you're, you're okay to arrive at a conclusion that's different from ours. And that doesn't make you good or bad. We don't have to apply moral indicators on that. Mm-hmm. Um, but so, so we just thought, you know what, let's give it a try. What if we reap? purpose the dollars we were paying toward tuition and put that toward, you know, college investment and their 529s, but also in building experiences with that would really uh, help them be successful. And so as they've grown, you know, we've tried to help them meet people that do the things that they do. We've tried to um, take trips that help uh, reinforce the things that they're learning so that they see the education and life are together. 
And then we've also, for, for the kids, we've, we've created kind of a path. Like there are certain things that they have to do. And I tell them every year on their birthday how many months they have left on the family payroll and how f- close they are to actually checking everything off the box. And that they have to have X amount in savings. They have to have started a business and made X amount of dollars. They've had to have worked for somebody. Um, they, and, and, you know, several, several things that are on, the, on that list. And the reason why those things are important is because I want them to be uh, confident, I want them to have self-awareness. I want them to know that they can generate income themselves by creating value in the market and they can generate income by working for somebody else. If they can know how to do that, they will step into the world with an infinite number of possibilities and never be limited. It has never, ever been um, a concern. I'm not saying it wasn't a risk, but it's never been a concern of mine whether I worked for somebody or worked for myself. In fact... Having 20, 30, 50 people pay me is a heck of a lot less risk uh, than having one person pay me, 100%. particularly a very large um, you know, salary. And so I, I've always looked at that as the bigger risk. You know? And so again, I've always been the oddball um, out. I've always been the one that's been willing to say what no one else is willing to say. That doesn't mean it. You know, I probably didn't always do it in the most tactful way, but I mean, mm-hmm. felt like if if the leader was asking a question, I was going to give the answer. Mm-hmm. If I didn't agree, I felt like it was it was an opportunity to disagree. And uh, and like I you know said before that that has gotten me wow. into uh, you know a lot of trouble. And so we wanted to create an environment for the kids where they they knew how to ask good questions, um, and they knew how to uh, make decisions given a set of circumstances. And, and, if, and if they can do that, then I can rest easy, Brooke can rest easy, mm-hmm. um, that they are, in fact, um, you know, self-sufficient individuals. And I think that, that, that you know, resilience, that commitment to self-sufficiency, I mean, those are the things that really built this country. Mm-hmm. And, and there's so much of that drift, uh, you know, taking place. And, you know, I, I think it's, it's, it's fascinating. Uh, I'm not sure we had any other decision because we were on the brink of anarchy when everything started to get shut down around the pandemic. Um, I'm not sure we had any other decision other than to send out um, money to individuals because, uh, you know, when, if, if, people, if people stopped believing they had the capacity to get food, um, this country would have turned really Oof. dark really fast, right? No but think about in January when Andrew Yang, who was running for the Democratic nomination, published a book that said that minimum viable income was our only option. That the growth of technology and the advancement of culture was going to put us in a place where people would no longer be employable. And so his solution, I actually do agree with that because they're not employable based upon old paradigms, but they do have to reinvent themselves for new paradigms. I've done that a number of times. Mm -hmm. Um, But his conclusion to that was minimum viable income. And, and and so in January that was ridiculed. It was even in the even in on the stage, it was an edge concept. Ten weeks later, pandemic hits. When are we getting those checks out? So we've engineered a culture. It's an example. Uh, it's an example of how we have begun to engineer even economic and financial policies around the fact that we have to uh, we we have to think and protect people because they can't think or protect themselves. Oh, so true. Holy and cow. and that is there's nothing that will literally you know strip the personhood out of somebody than that. Wow. 
And, uh, and, and so we, we as, as a country are literally neutering a generation um, from the capacity to take risks, think for themselves, and, and stand up for what they believe is true. And I believe that two opposing ideas can coexist. That's a great thing. Yeah. You know? Uh, but but when, when, you know, when we get to the point where uh, somebody else knows better for us than we know for ourselves... Um, then, then we're we're in a really dangerous territory, um, and we've seen some things take place over this past two years that I never thought were poss- was possible. Yeah. I, I remember watching growing up uh, the movie Wag the Dog, and I walked out of there um, almost. I mean, I was bothered. It shook me to my core at how quickly, you know, if, if you're not familiar with the, the movie, um, this president is trying to get reelected. He's, he's down in the polls. And so they hire a Hollywood movie producer to actually create a war around the world. And it's all Hollywood based, but the, you know, they are able to control the, the narrative and the news. And then, and everyone in America thinks that there's war and that then gets this president, you know, reelected. <laughs> and so, you know, the, the power to control what people think and how people think shapes their perception and their perception shapes what they're willing to uh, believe is permissible. And so when we think about where we are right now and the things that have taken place from, you know, guaranteed income, which is not going to stop, uh, when, when we think about, um, you know, we know best and we're going to tell you what, you what it is that you need to do, wherever you fall on that, let the individual make their decision, but we're continually advancing advancing um, ideas that I think we're going to, we're, we're going to live in the ramifications of for a long time. Whether or not you agreed with Trump, you had a publicly traded company that had a very public platform remove the sitting president of the United States because they didn't agree with his position. Yep. So, so if we're going to be fired up about something, Let's be fired up about the attack on individual uh, self-reliance, uh, the attack on uh, the ability to be able to have true freedom of speech and freedom of thought. And here we are today, two years later, and we have to edit ourselves more than we ever have in public because we don't know what the other person is going to say. Oof, no and question. that is censorship. Mm-hmm. When I have to stop and, and edit what I'm about to say because of who's in the room, that is censorship. It's already happened, yeah. and that's where we are. Uh, you know, I, you know, it's, and so it's a it's a sad day. And so what we've tried to do, in answer to your question, is create an, create an environment where they can they can learn those things and those principles, and they can exhibit, and that we can draw out of them by creating those environments. And I think we we have them tested every single year. Um, through the same type of achievement tests, now not the state state type programs. I mean the the Stanford achievement tests and others. They give us a baseline, so we're constantly measuring back and seeing how they're doing ac- across their peers. Um, and we give them the ability every single year to say yes or no to doing it again the next year. Hmm. Um, so, you know, like everything in, in, in our world um, and, and in my own kind of belief system, pending new information, um, I'm going to stick with what I have. But if new information is available that leads me to a different conclusion, I'm willing to adjust. Yeah, that's beautiful. And, uh, and so that's, that's, that's what we've, we've done for them. Wow. Or tried to. I need a drink. Holy <laughs> cow. That's so true. The, probably the most impactful part of my podcast is the part on perseverance, especially as it pertains to the feedback that I get every show. And obviously listening to this podcast, it, it looks like it's a straight shot of 
of success from the beginning to the end for you right now. But I'd be remiss to think that you didn't have to persevere through at least something that shook you enough that it made you wonder if you could overcome it or not. What's that one thing that happened in your life that rocked you enough that made you have to dig in more than you've ever had to dig in before? And once you came out the other side, it steeled your resolve to know you can take on anything. So I think we all would like to believe that we'll do the right thing no matter what the cost is. And I was part of this particular uh, company's leadership team. um, And uh, there were some pretty substantial changes uh, taking place. Uh, One was they stopped uh, issuing uh, full detail financial reports to the leadership team. It was just summary reports. Um, and that was just an example of a, a number of decisions that were being made. Um, some of the um, hiring decisions that were taking place um, were were really um, compromised to the point where I had done some research on uh, uh, one particular new hire that we were putting in front of clients as a uh, financial consultant. Um, and the first five organic search results uh, were from uh, the FBI and the state attorney general's office. And this particular individual had just gotten out of prison for financial fraud. Now, I am all about redemption. Mm-hmm. I'm all about the fact that people are doing that. I'm not willing to risk my equity in the company um, or personal brand or the company's brand in order to do that. That would be like taking an alcoholic and asking him to work in a bar. Yeah, for um, sure. It's, it's, it's a reckless type of decision. And, and I, I really became a very dark time because I was making a lot of money um, I had a vested interest in staying there. I had made a lot of sacrifice to be part of this, and I had vested a lot of myself in the time that's there because I, I don't know how to do anything other than 150%. Mm-hmm. And yet it would come to a point where my questioning didn't become productive. I started to become the object of the problem. And it was all a diversion tactic, um, but it was it was instead of instead of my you know just asking for reasonable explanations instead of that being met with reasonable conversation, um, you know you saw this um, you saw this real concerted circle the wagon type effort and and I kind of knew what that meant that either meant that I had to stop asking questions and get in line, or I had to leave. Mm-hmm. And I got two kids at home. You know, Brooke doesn't work, uh, so it's it's dependent on me, and it's not like it's not like I've made so much money, you know, in my life that I can just sit back and say, you know what, I'll just live off my investments for the next few years while I figure this out. And the type of job that I had, and the income that I was at, it's not just something that I could just step out of and go find a hundred different options, yeah. you know, that were out there. Uh, and so it was, it was a really dark time, um, and uh, and it was it was a time because I had to reconcile. Um, you know, kind of my own sense of justice and my own sense of what was the right thing to do. And I knew the right thing to do, but I was, I was scared to do it. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I ended up having to walk away. Wow. Um, that was the biggest thing. But coming out on the other side of that, one is, you know, I was really proud that um, when, you know, I, I, I acted out of what I believed to be true and right. And I'd much rather go down standing on that sure then going down stand on compromise for sure and i think also um when you're in an environment and a culture 
that is that allows it allows compromise at that level to be permissible um, you really do put yourself in a situation where you can be exposed to some things that uh, will make you um, regret yeah. at something at, at some point uh, in the future and so uh, you know I would say that that that's probably been the highest stake uh, you know kind of a high stakes type decision that was that was a really tough one and and I got to give it to Brooke I mean she she was there 100% and participating with me and just supporting me and listening to me and uh, and really kind of saying you know what do the right thing if that's what you want to do that that's what you need to do that's how we've decided to live our lives and this is no different than that and you just got to trust that it's going to work itself out mm-hmm. and the really cool thing is on the plane ride home I got an email from uh, some someone who wanted to who wanted to hire me, and uh, and I, I it, unsolicited. Uh, we had we had met a few times uh, just in some passing type environments, and he was looking. He was you know led a, a quarter of a billion dollar organization and and wanted somebody to come help help him make some change inside of it, and uh, and so it it did work out. It worked out in a powerful way. But that having to come to a point where I either had to say I'm going to set aside what I believe to be true in order to go along. Uh, with the norm and with mm-hmm. in this particular organization, or I was going to step out of that and say, I'm done, whatever that means, whatever that might cost me. That, that was a tough moment. Well, that's like a, a blended story of the sales team prophecy and the secret. <laughs> that's right. Where you, nobody you meet in your life is by accident. It's all designed. And then the law of attraction, uh, bringing it to you. I love that story. That's an awesome story. Well, the second half of the show is about the things you do to recharge, because obviously you given 150% can drain the batteries. And the, those are the things that, generally speaking, bring a large amount of people together doing like-minded things that recharge the batteries, which is why you know, 50,000 people show up for a concert, 100,000 people show up for football games, um, or people love to go experience the world in, in travel. So when I think back to the things that shaped me and helped me re- re- rekindle myself is music. What is your, when you were growing up and, and now, what are your favorite kinds of music? My favorite, I, I, gosh, I, I like... I, I like new new types of music. I mean, I, I love jazz, mm-hmm. uh, and uh, I love um, uh, you know I love alternative music. Mm-hmm. Um, one of the one of the uh, one of the bands that I love, and it just I love playing it partly because I love the band, and partly because it drives Brooke crazy. <laughs> uh, is a group called the Cramps, and uh, my brother uh, took me. Uh, he was living in L.A. at the time. We went out to Ventura, and they had took, they had redone this opera house um, into be. This, this concert venue and the cramps if you're not familiar with them are like died in the wool punk rock i mean like never go mainstream kind of like they're the last ones right mm-hmm. and uh and, and and so it was just so fun because it was raw it was real uh it was uh it was just it was just a, a moment i'll i'll never forget so yeah I, absolutely that's um but i have a i have a i also listen to a lot of classical music um, you know, really, really do enjoy and appreciate kind of getting lost in uh, in that sound. And and in fact, 
sometimes when I'm really in that flow work, mm-hmm. I'll, I'll, I'll get that classical music going. And, uh, and that just allows me to, it kind of, you know, it kind of just, kind of just closes the world out, um, uh, around me. And then, you know, in, in that, in that same vein and it, and, and that is that I actually like to listen to a lot of Gregorian chant, um, particularly, uh, particularly when I'm in modes where I'm doing either some major analysis, um, either I'm doing some major analysis or I'm, um, you know, working through some, um, you know, working through something that that just is going to take a lot of a lot of thinking. There's just something about that that ancient music um, that really does draw me out. Yeah, that's that's the first person that said that on my podcast. But I've done a lot of studying on on that particular uh, the Gregorian chant stuff and certainly classical music. And so when you think about like my favorite band is Tool, right? And Tool does these songs that are like ten to twelve, fifteen minutes long. And in many ways, Maynard only sings in three and a half minutes of it, and it's very hypnotic music. And it's and there's a lot to, that goes into music that can pull you in and out of flow state, hmm. even when it's done correctly. Like classical hmm. music, for sure, right? But the chant music also is interesting. And my second favorite band is Pearl Jam, and Eddie Vedder nice. went to work with some a Hawaiian gentleman and another person I cannot remember which maybe I think he's from India that worked on his his ability to chant while singing hmm. and some of his work in the mid 90s had a lot of that in it and com- with the right beat tones and the right rhythms with that chanting it throws people into a hypnotic state flow state-ish where they're able to lock in to whatever it is that they're doing in a subliminal background way that it allows people to get a creative spike a focus spike and thus in a work environment becomes a powerful tool, but in a recharge live event, it is a massive recharge because the ability to flip off the conscious mind into a subconscious event and almost be absorbed into the sound is a absolute 100% recharger for everybody. Yeah. And it doesn't surprise me that you say that. And it's interesting I would imagine there may be some people that just didn't want to say that, that that's what they like. I have had people say they like classical music, but not the way you answered the question. Hmm. That's fascinating stuff. I love that. So obviously, that cramp show is your favorite live concert you've ever been to? Absolutely. No doubt. Uh, It was wild and crazy and uh, completely unscripted. And I'm sure if I had seen it, you know, every night that it was there, it would have been completely different. Yeah. But that one time. That's right. That's what it all takes. It only takes one, right? That's right. Love that. Well, I know you're a voracious reader and so am I. What are like your the top five books that you've read that took you to where you are today? Mm, that's a r- really good question. Um, I, you know, I, I certainly the Tom Peters book that I told you uh, told you about the the brand you. I think that that was a very very powerful um, book in in shaping my thinking. Uh, the Challenger Sale. Uh, Matthew Dixon mm-hmm. uh, was a really good one. Uh, it really talks about 
how the person who influences the most in the environment is the person not who brings new information, but new perspective. Um, and I think that's something that has really, uh, has really shaped something. Um, I love Lencioni's work, uh, ideal team player, humble, hungry, and smart, um, reference that, um, quite a bit. And so I try to be that person, um, in, uh, you know, in, in, in environments where, you know, humble, not in the sense that, um, uh, I don't believe in myself, but humble in the sense that I'm willing to learn and listen and participate. Um, hungry, I think it's just, you know, it's the striving, um, yeah. and then the smart part of it is just being able to to get it done um to, to execute so I, uh, those those are definitely definitely at the at the top of my list uh, you know i also like uh, letters to a young poet um if if you've read that uh, I, I think it you know it's really uh you know between you know between the kind of the the author and this uh third party and and it's really somebody trying to figure out their way forward um and uh you know and, and he's really encouraging them to just lean into the journey mm-hmm. and trust yourself um and don't try try to uh you know kind of uh just conform to all of that i think another one that was really powerful for me uh, is joseph campbell uh, the Power of Myth uh, mm. was a real good one, which was based on an interview he did with Bill Moyers. But he also, that that was also based on his kind of seminal work, which is A Hero with a Thousand Faces. Um, and what I love about the study of mythology is it's the study of humanity trying to understand its human condition. Mm-hmm. Um, and so the characteristics and similarities that you find within religious communities um, have been true in even ancient communities. We just have different stories and different things that we knew at those particular times. Um, but that, you know, Know, that that was really for me how you see the world shapes is really shaped by uh, or really shapes the decisions that you make wow. um, and 100%. I think that's that's something that has been um, a big part of of you know for me and and as I've gotten older and as I've been exposed to to different kinds of, of training and people and methodologies um, deconstructing assumptions that people have and that I even have in that is what becomes the source of new ideas oh wow that is definitely who you are right there. <laughs> Is the deconstructing of that? Yeah, and that's good and bad, by the way. Well, it's what, what makes it is. it's yin and yang, right? Everything, um, everybody's strength is also their weakness. Yeah, because when you lean in too hard, you get off balance. Yeah, right. Like it's interesting to me. Like when I'm listening to your your favorites, right, and I'm trying to then think about the things that have become my favorite. You know, I love Malcolm Gladwell, but and and some of his books have been so powerful. But yet, Outliers, which is a very powerful book, in many ways has been proven he he misinterpreted information uh, on the ten thousand hour rule, right? And how he kind of tweaks the story for entertainment purposes, right? Not truthful purposes. Uh, his book, Talking to Strangers, which is such a powerful book, I strongly encouraged Ensworth to make that a book that these kids read because he does research on how people meet strangers mm. and our internal biases can create really bad problems for us when we're meeting strangers. Mm. Like, so I meet strangers every day. Of right? course I meet do. people that I don't know every day, whether it's for media, book, public speaking, or golf lessons. All of those, I'm meeting somebody new for the first time. I found that book so unbelievably powerful because I'm listening to stories about how people generally misjudge people's facial expressions hmm. the very first thing you see you it allows you to easily create biases oh this person's nice or this person's not 
mm. and how all these things that we don't even know that we're doing impact how we interact with strangers. Stephen Kotler, who is the, one of the foremost authorities on flow states and understanding human performance at the very highest end, like that's what I do all day long is help people touch the highest level of themselves. Hmm. It's like my books aren't the same as your books, but they generally serve the same purpose. They, uh, they guide you into your, in a search for learning, which is part of your, it's what you preach when, with your job, but it's also what you preach for yourself. All of these things that you talked about are about learning mm-hmm. and the ability and moving past the constructs of what you know very eerily similar to me. I find that so fascinating because I, I haven't asked too many book questions in this particular part because a lot of other people have other things they, they, that are their strengths in, right. their, in, in their life. But I know we've talked many times during lessons about things that we, that we have read. And I'm like, I wanted to hear what you had to say about that. I know you also love podcasts. Yes. What podcasts do you, do you employ in your, in your free time that have really taken you to the next level? So, gosh, I, I'm, I'm, it's constant rotation, but I have about 50, 50 or 55 podcasts I listen to on a wow. weekly basis. I listen to all of them at two times speed, um, and that's, that helps me kind of, kind of keep up uh, with, uh, you know, with it. Um, I, you know, I, I, I listen to them a lot of times for entertainment purposes um, so, you know, I, I, and learning new things. So right now I'm fascinated with the manufacturing industry. Um, so I just went and grabbed what were at the top of the charts for, for, uh, manufacturing and I'm listening and I'm learning and trying to expose myself to what are the conversations that people in that particular sector are having right now. Interesting. Um, and it's fascinating how some of that's the same and how it's fascinating how some of that's not, um, love listening to stuff from, uh, you know, Goldman Sachs and McKinsey and, and, and the management companies, because that helps me kind of stay connected, um, to those particular conversations. Um, but I love listening to things about cars. I mean, I, you know, and, and vehicles, I, it's, it's something that I really, um, enjoy and it's something that I have, uh, have fun with. I listen to a couple, you know, uh, another segment is kind of on productivity. Cause I'm always looking for, you know, what are those particular leadership hacks um, mm-hmm. that people are using um, to be part of that. And then I have a few technology podcasts that I like to stay um, connected with, not so much about the how-tos, but more about the ethics of technology. Mm. Um, because I, I think, you know, we're, uh, in one of the books that you had recommended that I read is the future is faster than you think. Yes. And, um, and so, you know, one of the things that uh, technology has, technology does not have a conscience. And so we're now taking people who are really smart and engineers and asking them to create things, and yet then we're upset that they didn't bring a conscience. Uh, not that they themselves, but I'm talking about they collectively didn't bring a conscience to it, right? You know, we're frustrated with Facebook, and there's lots of things to be frustrated with Facebook about. But that, that whole thing emerged so fast because we wanted it. And then so we looked at what we, what we created cooperatively, uh, you know, no one forced us to share our information with them. We created cooperatively and now we're angry that there's no conscience that's part of it. Um, and so I, I think a lot of what technology is asking itself is not what's possible, but what should be. 
And so it's fascinating to listen to engineers step into that conversation. Oh, wow. Uh, because I think it's a really important one um, that, that shapes it. Because there is no algorithm that's not created by a human. There is no human that is not biased in some way. And that's, that's what the whole study of ethics is about. Yeah. Um, and so imperfection is within us. Therefore, it is in, within every system that exists. Um, so we have to evaluate uh, not what's possible not what is, but what should be, and what is the de delta or the distance between those two things, and what responsibility do we have in that? Wow, two of my favorites right there. Listening to a podcast at two times speed is a Jim Quick limitless model. Interesting. And the future is faster than you think is Stephen Kotler. I just think most people talk too slow. Well, not only that, but <laughs> but there's we're only ha we only have 24 hours in a day. That's right. That's right. And if you can still understand what's being said at two times the speed, that's compressed learning. Right. And that's maximizing your time. And uh, Jim Quick, who's the foremost authority in speed reading and compressed learning, he talks about it in his book, and that's a top five book for me. Is Limitless by mm. Quick, and it's like that's what I do. I'm like I'm trying to I speed read. And I try, I like, I listen to Rogan on, on two times speed because in my opinion, how Joe Rogan asks questions and how he prepares for a three hour conversation to make it seem like your those three hours go by and you're like, that didn't even seem like it was 40 minutes. That's what I want people to feel like when they listen to me. Absolutely. So like, but I don't have three hours. How can I get it in an hour and a half? Double speed, you know, two exit. And, you know, so that's really interesting. I love that. Wow. Traveling. Where have you traveled in the world that is a great recharge for you? I absolutely love to travel. Burke doesn't love to travel as much as I do. But I mean, for many, many years, I mean, I lived 25, 30 weeks of the year, um, you know, out of a suitcase, you know, me and my little Toomey bag. Mm -hmm. uh, we've gone a lot of places. <laughs> um, you know, I think, I think one, of the, one of the coolest places I've ever been is Mexico City. Really? Um, part of it was because it was, it was a fascinating people watch environment. It's so different. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, I remember it's like, you know, there's traffic laws that are, um, you know, they're, they're um, um, what's the word I'm looking for? Uh, they're there. Their suggestions, yeah, their suggestions, <laughs> but but you you have the ability to uh, uh, to sidestep them or to reinterpret them however you need to. And so that was fascinating to watch human beings and vehicles just try to make it down the road. Yes, these six uh, lanes are not for six rows of cars. It's just spacing identifiers. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> to allow you to fit nine cars in these. That six is lanes. exactly right. <laughs> and then you know, and, and then you have this ancient and new. That's kind of in between there, right? You oh, know, yeah. um, and I, I think that's what a fascinating kind of metaphor for how we live life. That so much of who we are as human beings is very ancient, and yet we find we think we think about ourselves in very modern ways. And wow, uh, and so right there. you know, I, I thought that was good. And then I just absolutely love the music and the food. Um, I just think I just think there's you know just there's just there was just something about it that was a that was a really great um, appeal but uh, overall any place like I love going to the beach there's just something about the beach that just kind of slows everything down but I'm yeah. a bit of an oddball because I don't like getting in the water and I don't like sand in my feet because mm -hmm. I'm a little OCD about all of that uh -huh. right because then sand gets in my shoes and then it gets back in the condo then it gets in the car then it makes it home and I can never escape it right yep. um, and uh, and and that but I love being at the beach 
um, sitting out, just listening to the water. I could just do that um, for, you know, there, there's very few, there's only three things that really slow my brain down. One is driving. Um, you know, if, if I believed in reincarnation, I was a truck driver at some point uh, because I just absolutely love getting in a, you know, on the road and just driving. I can clear my head faster that way than anything else. Me too. Running. Um, absolutely love, love that. Um, and, uh, you know, put my AirPods in, uh, and, and it was freedom from having to run with the phone. I can just run with my watch and then, uh, and then just turning the music up or listening to podcasts and just going. Um, and I literally, I don't even think about what's happening to me physiologically. Mm-hmm. I'm just relaxing in my brain. Um, and then, and then listening to the, the water. Um, and just being in that kind of beach community where everything's a little more relaxed, um, everybody's a little slower. Uh, there's just something of what happens when you kind of cross this barrier into a beach town. That's just uh, it's 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 great, and it's you know one of one of our goals personally uh, when we uh, pay off our house is that we want to we want to invest in a, in a beach property mm-hmm. um, that that can just be our kind of escape. Yeah. Um, and not as not as an investment where we rent it out, but just a place where we could literally have our clothes, have everything there, and we just get in the car and we just go, go there, and we can spend three or four days a week there if we wanted to. Wow, that's awesome! That is so powerful, right there. Uh, it's interesting. It got me thinking about Will Smith won an, uh, uh, an award a long time ago, and he felt compelled to leave a message, which was there's only two things in this world you need to to learn how to do you need to learn how to run and I was like well, that's strange and he goes you need to learn how to run because you got to learn how to run all the way up until it hurts hmm. and then you have to be able to ignore that guy who's telling you that my lungs hurt my legs are tired and then when you learn how to push through that you learn that you have so much more capable than the fear that your brain puts out early. And, you know, Goggins talks about it at the 40% mark. Yeah. At 40%, you've burnt 40%. You still got 60%, but your brain's like, man, we're gassed. And you got to be able to move past that spot. And then the second thing he says is read. And what we've already talked about, how much we love to read, is that there's, you know, there's been millions of books, millions of pages written, and there's not a problem that hasn't already occurred, that hasn't already been solved. All you got to do is find it and read about it. Yeah. And that, that, and he walked off the stage, and I'm thinking to myself, I didn't just watch that for accident. It was to prepare me for today, hmm. because that right there is, you know, what it is that we've been talking about, and some of the things that you do to get to where you are, is something that Will Smith, one of the most famous singers and actors of our generation, hang his hat on every day. So it's nice to know one that even though you're not Will Smith and you're not world, worldly recognized both on acting and music, right. but you're employing the exact same things hmm. that a superstar is, and he gave us his roadmap 27 years ago, and, and you're doing it, so hats off to you. Well, thank I just, you. I just find that interesting. Like, once again, I'm, I'm a big, I read the Celestine Prophecy. The Celestine Prophecy blew my mind because it made me think about all the people I've sat beside in buses, cars, mm. and airplanes that I was courageous enough to talk about or talk with just because I love people that have brought me other things in my life. And it was a powerful book on you. That person that you're sitting beside was put there for a reason. 
do something with it or you've lost it. And ever since I read that book, I think I was 23. Hmm. So that puts me 96. Since 96, I don't go on an airplane ride and not talk to people I'm sitting beside. If I'm in, a, I'm in the taxi, I'm going to talk to the taxi driver. Yeah. Or if I'm sitting in an Uber with other people, I'm going to figure out something. I, I love talking to Uber drivers. So do I. Oh, my gosh. That uh, the listen to their story, their uh, you know, however they ended up, you know, driving. What's they, they'll they'll tell you about their kids. They'll tell you about their family. Uh, it was it, it was really great. You know, I remember one in in D.C. Um, he said he came to America and started driving for Uber. Had one he had rent, was renting his Yukon XL at the time, and now he owned eight. Yukon XLs wow. and had other drivers working for him. And, uh, and I thought that's just perfect. It's, you know, it, it's, it, it was, but, but listening to that story was so inspiring because, yeah. you know, the American dream is very much alive and well. Yeah. Most of the time, the limits that are put on ourselves are in our own mind. And when people come here from outside of the United States with no idea how great we have it and how poorly they have it. And when they see the land of opportunity, they take advantage of it. Just like the people who came to this country in 1700, 1800, 1900, when, the, when we're not those big, huge power that we are now, is that they, that's that, that gentleman you're talking about that has the eight Yukons now. Well, if, he's no different than the, the frontiersman. There was an opportunity. We, my God, we're free. We're free to do it. To take it, take a chance, take a risk, do what we want to do. That's been lost, and that's why we. That's why, in some ways, it's interesting to to see immigration done correctly. What it does to our country is it reminds us that how we got here in the first place, and to don't be so close minded and so bound up in the bubble that you're in. Because if not, you're going to be overtaken by somebody who's never had it. And as I tell these kids on this golf team, it's not necessarily the team that's the best that's going to win. It's the team that's the hungriest. That oh, guy, one one hundred percent. That guy's hungry. And I, I've I've always said the most dangerous person in the room is the person who can walk away. Oh yeah. Um, and when you look in the environments and you, you, you see those people, you, you can tell them because they're not, they're not willing to just go along with it. But the, the you know the trouble is we, we've lost our sense of that we can walk away. Because we think whatever's in front of us is it, and and yet I, I think it's a I think it's an unbelievable adventure, mm-hmm. but the adventure has peaks and valleys, and you know you got to take the times that are that are tough to to also realize the times that are are really successful. And I remember working on a, a project with an individual who had started this company here in Nashville. You, you would know his name if I if I mentioned it, and you know he he started it from from scratch and uh, I think he sold it for hundreds of millions of dollars. It was, it was very very successful. And we were talking about that whole um process. And he said, Ben, he said, you know, everyone wants the big payout. But he said there were decades where he and his wife would roll over twenty five, thirty, fifty million dollars in debt um for the company um year to the next year, to the next year, to the next year. And he said no one wants to no one wants to think about those types of things. And I, th- I think, you know, this is what's really striking. And I think it's what we don't talk enough about, about people who are at the peak of whatever it is that they do, um, that they had to, they had to, they had to, they had to risk it all. And they had to believe enough in it that they're willing to put themselves in a situation where if it didn't go right, they were going to lose everything. Mm-hmm. 
And, and I don't mean a reckless type of lose everything, but there's a, there's, there, there is a, a, there's a resolve. Like if you're going to roll over, wh- whether you can or you can't, if you can roll over $50 million in, in debt to keep your company rolling year over year, there's a resolve that comes in that. Mm-hmm. Um, and there, and, and, and that, that, that really kind of pushes you to the top. So the, and, and I think that shapes how you think about the world. Um, you really do step out of what people believe is conventional because when we hold up these people who have achieved things that nobody else has, they had to have the resolve to do something no one else had done before. And that meant they had to leave behind the constraints that were told to them. And so I just, you know, we're now as a society waking up, you know, as so many of our permission systems are, are disintegrating right before our eyes, we're realizing that we can work efficiently and not be in the same location at the same agreed upon time. Finally. Yep. Um, we have, you know, we're, we're, we're realizing that you can learn at any age and in any way. And we're also recognizing that learning isn't constrained to a degree or diploma. Uh, you know, we're, uh, we're realizing that you don't have to wait um, until you're 40 in order to do something significant. I mean, you know, all I had to do was tell Carter that he needed to start a business. And, you know, here we are talking to, you know, an attorney and accountant about how we're going to start structuring his finances, you know, his financial general ledger and all of that and how we're going to incorporate. I mean, you know, at 15. 15. Uh, So, I mean, like, you know, if if he can, if he can do that and it's not because I gave him hundreds of thousands of dollars to go do it, it's because he was, well, he, he just, he took me at my word. Mm -hmm. Dad said, I can do it. I'm going to go do it. Yeah. And he chased it until he figured out what the formula was, and then then he, you know he he went after it. He's this. You're doing the same thing in his life by pushing back what's possible on the golf course. Um, you know, I get as much out of how you challenge him mentally as as he does. Um, just just listening to to what you're doing, but but removing those things that are governing what he's capable of. That's right. And uh, and I, I think the people who have mad- mattered the most in my journey, those mentors who have really unlocked, they were people that that gave me opportunities to do things I wasn't qualified to do. They gave me responsibility that I was nowhere in a position to take, and they told me I could do things that I didn't yet believe I could do in myself. Wow, that's beautiful. And that that is what unleashed and unlocked the potential that led me to a point where it's unacceptable. If I if life doesn't light you up, go do something else. That's right. Well, you just struck in uh, another one of my favorites is Tony Robbins. He says two things. One of them is, if you get an opportunity and you don't know how to do it, say yes and figure it out. Yeah. I've talked about that a lot. And number two, another one that I, I've heard him say before, but I watched it recently, which is if you want to find out how hard you can go and how much you can ch- and charge yourself to be a, a killer, so to speak, in, in the business world, burn your boats. If you're going to go to a foreign land to try to take over and you want to be committed, burn the boats you came on. Yeah. Now you're committed because you're not leaving. You're either going to win or you're going to die with it. And that's what you just basically just said is that you have to be that committed. You have to be that hungry if you're going to make it, because if not, somebody else is at 100%. That's exactly right. And I think that's, that's what we can't, that's what we can't lose, lose sight of. And, and, you know, we, we forget that these um, immovable objects and institutions and enterprises that we have so much faith in, you know, that created these constructs of pensions and benefits and all of this, we, we think that that's how it's been forever. Um, and it's a very short 
period of American history yeah. uh, where that was true and human history where that was true. Mm-hmm. You know, we, we really, we, we need to rediscover what it means to, um, you know, create value. And I think that's even we're talking about now that some of the conversations that are coming out of the management circles, uh, the kind of the big management companies around the future of work um, is going to be going back to the artisan craftsman mastery um, individual person, you know, setting up shop, um, you know, doing their, doing their thing whatever that looks like and uh, and that that's really a return back to uh, you know to what it was yeah. and and the, and the way things were and I think that's so we've just um, we, we've just become so enchanted uh, and and with that enchantment comes dependencies and we've put ourselves in such a dependent scenario that we're not willing to wake up and realize that we have agency in every situation. Mm-hmm. You know, it was funny when I was working, when I have worked for other people in the past and I'd go in for the job review, I would always tell them, no, let's understand the rules of engagement here. You're evaluating me and I'm evaluating you. We get to sign up for this one year at a time. So if you want to make changes to what I'm doing, then, I, then you're renegotiating what I've already accepted perfectly within your purview to do. It's also in my purview to be able to decide whether or not I accept the terms of that relationship. Mm-hmm. And uh, wasn't always well received, um, but, but very, often, um, very often I would get things out of those relationships, whether it was permission to do things that I hadn't previously gotten permission to or opportunities that pre- just because I didn't, I'm, I'm not coming here to look for validation from mm-hmm. you. Um, I'm coming here to say, are we both still creating value for each other by working together. And if we're not, maybe it's time for me to go do something else. Yeah. Wow. That's powerful. Final question. Generally speaking, we have become the five people that we spent the most time with in our lifetime. Hmm. Judging them, obviously things change. I mean, you're not old by any stretch of the imagination, but before you are right now, who are the five people that have impacted you so much that they're like your beacons of light or your guideposts to where you are right now? I think one would have to be my dad. Um, we, we lost him last, last summer. And uh, certainly you spend a lot of time with your parents. Yeah. Um, and, you know, certainly he was not a, a perfect individual, but there were a lot of things that I've reflected on that I wasn't even aware of or awake, um, awake around you know, and it's for so much of my life. And mm-hmm. yet I think about uh, so many of the things that I think back on and that really come up for me. And as the kids get older and thinking about that, um, certainly, you know, he's a constant, constant influence, um, you know, in, in, in my own life. Um, I think about, um, uh, you know, this particular uh, manager that I've mentioned a couple of times in this conversation, um, you know, he, he just, matter of fact, we still get together. We haven't in recent because of the pandemic, but we used to get together almost every year and have for years to get, you know, hamburgers and tater tots and milkshakes, um, just to kind of hang out. Um, you know, I, I kid him because now he has to take a pill in order to be able to do that and stay healthy. <laughs> but, uh, but, uh, you know, I mean, you know, it's just, it's just great. I mean, he's somebody that I go back to and, you know, he, he was, he was willing to say what, everyone was thinking and, and no one was willing to say, um, he, he built parts of the company that he worked for most of his professional life, um, you know, bit by bit, brick by brick. And, uh, just, just someone who really figured out how to maintain his own voice, um, through everything. And he constantly gave permission for people, including me, uh, to do things that had never, uh, you know, had never done before. 
Um, you know, I also would say that I would definitely say that, you know, one of those people has to be, um, both boys. Um, you know, there's something about being on the, you know, when you're the son looking up to the father, but then also when you're the father looking at, at your son, you're, you're seeing reflections yeah. <laughs> of yourself Absolutely. and, uh, some of those things you like and some of those things you don't, but you know, both, both kids, even though they came from the same parents, uh, you know, are two remarkable individuals. And, uh, and so I constantly learn from them and I'm challenged by them, um, you know, and, and, you know, want to continue to, you know, to, to explore life with them and encourage them and fan their flames, um, and, and let them, let them go on. I know they're both are going to be unbelievably successful in their own right. They're going to do it in very different styles and very different ways, but, um, I, I really do learn a lot. Hmm. Um, you know, Brooke and I got married really young. I was 21. She was 20. Hadn't finished college yet. Um, there were not many people that thought that was a good idea. Now, a different generation would have been sure. like 21. We wait how, how come you're not ready? <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> but, uh, but, you know, in, in just a, you know, just a few decades ago, that was not, uh, that was not normal. Um, we still meet people to this day that didn't get married until their late thirties, early forties. And, um, and so there's something about that that was really, um, it's really powerful. It's hard because when you get married and you're young and you're just starting out, you're broke. <laughs> uh, you know, so I mean, that creates all kinds of stress. And we watched our single friends and even some of, you know, they, they took trips and they did things and, and all of that. And so we, you know, we became adults together mm-hmm. while we were learning how to, you know, be husband and wife. Yeah. And I think there's something about that that was really shaping. Uh, boy, it was hard. We're both very independent thinkers. We're both very type A, strong-willed individuals. Um, you know, so we, we know how to fight like Italians. <laughs> and, uh, you know, and, and, uh, and we know how to hold our own, uh, you know, through all of that. And, uh, you know, the difference is that she really feels that. I just, it's intellectually stimulating for me. But, but you know, and, 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 and working that out, you know, she has shaped me and brought out of me, I think, some of the, the best parts of who I am today. Mm-hmm. Um, and I would not be the person that I am uh, without her. And then, uh, you know, I would say if there's uh, definitely um, uh, another person that, that's made a, 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 a profound impact is you know, maybe, maybe I would say collectively um, clients, in my life. Um, mm-hmm. I'm very particular about the clients that I work with. Um, and there's, there's a few clients in particular that I've had long standing relationships with. And these are individuals that, you know, we've, we've moved past the actual just mechanics of the relationship. Um, I think they've invited me into their world of, of struggle and I've invited them into my world of struggle. And then that then creates an environment where they're, they're kind of, you know, helping me do things, um, and that, and I think that that higher level relationship is a, is a really powerful thing. But, uh, because I'm able to surround myself with ambitious leaders who are always striving to do things that they don't presently know how to do or believe is possible. Um, I am constantly in environments with people who exhibit things that I want to exhibit in my own life. 
And, uh, and that's uh, advice that I hear again and again and again. If you want to be successful, surround yourself with successful people. And, and you're known by the company that you keep. And yep. so uh, that's why, that's why uh, you know, I'm very, very particular about who I work with. Because I'm not just interested in being another contract relationship. Um, I want somebody who wants to achieve something that's going to require us to, uh, you know, sweat and bleed and, and hold each other up in that process and encourage each other when it, when it gets tough. And, you know, there's nothing that solidifies that like a pandemic. You know, I started Velocity in 2019, uh, you know, it was, took off like a rocket ship. And uh, when 2020 hit, I thought, man, this is it. You know, it's been a good run, <laughs> shorter than what I thought, <laughs> but it's all over. And, uh, and, and every single one of my clients doubled down. Oh, that's uh, beautiful. I mean, we did a uh, we did a hard pivot left, <laughs> you know, from from where we were headed, and it took a lot of energy to build that momentum. But I didn't lose one client; I gained clients um, as a result of it. And what I had hoped, um, what I had learned about myself and working in other environments to bring about breakthrough results, was what resonated with these individuals, and it attracted other people like them. And so it that. That I look at as probably the mo- one of the most fulfilling things about what I do because I'm constantly around people who want to achieve things that are larger than life. That's beautiful. Well, if any of my listeners have any interest in checking out Velocity Strategy Solutions, how can my listeners track you down to get your insight to help them take their business to the next level? So they can... Uh, plug into VelocityStrategySolutions.com. And then they can also find me on LinkedIn. Uh, Those are probably the two most common places where I'm active. Um, I do some on Twitter, but Twitter is such a changing environment. Um, But if if you're on LinkedIn or if you can can buzz over there, um, you know, heck, if you want to text me, uh, you know, 615-436-3449, 615-436-3449. I I occasionally get texts from leaders, and that's a very appropriate way to uh, reach out as well. Well, I can't thank you enough for sharing your story. It was a, a mentally uh, exercising, to say the least, and one of my favorite ones that I've ever done. So thank you very much for your time. Wow, thank and, you. Uh, and uh, I look forward to seeing you again real soon, buddy. Well, I appreciate the opportunity. Thanks for all the investment that you've given to, um, to Carter. You've really helped him grow and excel, and I know he's going to do great things, and he's going to remember you as one of those five people, I guarantee you. Well, you're very kind. He's this outrageously special kid. You should be very proud. I'm super excited to know him, that's for sure. Well, thank you very much, Ben. Thank you. Cure is focused on providing natural alternatives to aid with current or previous medical conditions. Cure does this by providing therapeutic properties of natural cannabinoid formulations for multiple uses, whether internally or externally. Ask your physical therapist or your primary care physician if cannabinoids are right for you. Or check out their website, www.curemich.com. Cure. Cannabis used for research and education. On the Verge is produced by Chase Akers. If you've enjoyed the show, leave a five-star rating and write a review. Click subscribe to make sure that you don't miss a single episode.